0: I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Nothing can make up for the devastating losses caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Every aspect of our lives seems to have been impacted. However, there is a small silver lining the incredible advances in medical treatment and technology that has come from the cooperation of researchers and the resources they were granted to fight the virus. Joining me today is Lawrence Ganty, the president of SIO2 Materials Science, a company based out of Alabama. One of the company's products is vaccine vials, which obviously grew in demand during the pandemic. He's here to discuss how COVID impacted his company and the greater trend of COVID's overall effect on emerging medical technologies. Welcome, Lawrence. Welcome. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thank you very much. We're very happy to have you. So can we start with a little bit about your company's history? When were you founded?
1: Sure. So SIO2 Material Science, we were founded in late 2012, and we were kind of a, a spin out of another company called CSP Technologies. Uh, which which was making plastic uh, tubing for the medical device industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spent really the last, I would say, eight, nine years doing research and development of, of coming up with this new material, which is what ended up forming the, these new
0: COVID vaccine vials. Mm-hmm. And can you describe the vaccine vials? What are, what are their strengths?
1: So the vials themselves, normally vaccine vials or medication vials are typically using traditional glass. So they're, they're a small glass vial what we've done is we've invented you know a new material which is a hybrid of glass and plastic so typical problems with glasses if you drop it it breaks right everybody Mm -hmm. knows that glass has those kind of problems there are other problems in terms of delamination uh, where you have metal particles and glass particles that come off the vials uh, into the medication those are kind of well known in the industry but there hasn't really been an alternative so Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years what we've done as a company was try to eliminate all these kind of problems and invent effectively a new material, which is a hybrid. It fuses glass and plastic. So the outer shell, the vial itself is plastic. It's a polymer, it's unbreakable. You can run it over with a Hummer, you can drop it out of the building, <laughs> it, it doesn't break. Um, but the inside of the vial has a microscopic lining of glass and it's pure SiO2, hence the name of the company where it's you know 10 times or 30 times thinner than a human hair. So you don't actually see the glass lining, but it has all the protective barrier properties of glass. Hmm. Glass, as, as we may or may not know, is often used in packaging when you need to keep out moisture and keep out oxygen. And most of these biological drugs and vaccines need to have stability against moisture and against oxygen coming into the container. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you don't see typical plastic vials being used for for medication.
0: Right. That that makes sense. How does the process work? Like, how do you get this thin layer of glass on top of plastic?
1: So it's it's a it's a process that's called plasma enhanced chemical vapor deposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a technology that was invented many years ago and and used for in the microelectronics space. So you're typically seeing this kind of plasma deposition used in microchips, you know, places like Intel, Cisco, Mm -hmm. you know, places like that, but they've never been successfully applied in a medical setting. And and the main challenge with medicine is that you can't, you can't have a 99.9% barrier, right? You have to have a hundred percent barrier, whereas microelectronics, things that are not being injected into your body, you know, it's close enough. Right. But for us, being able to come up with this technology was really what we spent the last 10 years was how do you create this microscopic layer of pure glass without affecting the integrity of the plastic vial, but at the same time ensuring and guaranteeing that you have a hundred percent coverage. And that's Mm -hmm. what we've been doing over the past years.
0: Yeah. Charles river has a department that does endotoxin testing and all those sort of things. And this is obviously the sort of thing that would totally need an endotoxin test because it goes into the bloodstream. So like the glass is thick enough to like prevent any microbes from entering into the specimen itself.
1: Absolutely. So we've done, so we've worked with Charles River River Labs, we've worked with a number of other testing labs. So the typical things that they test for is they test for whether you know microscopic entities can go in and out of the container. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. also what they also test for is that you know plastic and glass have things called extractables and leachables. Mm-hmm. these are things that come off the actual container itself it's it's inherent to the material and what they're testing for is how much of that is coming into the into the substance or coming into the liquid of the vial um, and we're we're crystal clean i mean we're better than plastic and we don't have any of the problems of glass so that's why we like to say that we have the best of both worlds
0: cool. we have
1: all all the protective qualities that are needed from glass, uh, in terms of oxygen and moisture barrier, but we don't have the typical, um, endotoxin profile of plastic, uh, we're, we're a much cleaner substance. So we're equivalent to glass and we're equivalent to plastic and we've eliminated all the drawbacks of both.
0: Yeah. This is completely on a separate topic, but now I'm imagining sort of a car windshield with this very thin layer of glass over plastic, making it, you know, maybe not so, um, not so prone to cracking if it gets hit by a pebble on the highway, but that'd be pretty cool. But
1: Well, there are, actually, so we actually are working with various government entities on various applications. Um, so on the one hand, you're taking this application and, and we've, we've used it for biological syringes. We've used it for vaccine vials. There's even uh, a leading baby bottle manufacturer that got a, you know, one of the top uh, 10 products of the year by time magazine, they're using our technology, so it's, it's basically a plastic bottle, but the inside, uh, the baby's milk is only touching glass. Hmm. So there, it, the applications are, are endless. I mean, you could use it on, you know, on bulletproofing of certain cars. You can use it on um, you know, mascara tubes. You can use it on baby bottles. Uh, so there's, there's endless possibilities to the technology.
0: Very cool. And just out of pure curiosity, can any of these be made from recycled materials? I assume they can't be recycled afterwards because of the bonding.
1: That's correct. So, you, well, the thing is, it, they can be recycled depending on the use. Mm, so, okay. a, baby, a baby bottle can be recycled because arguably you're using you're only using milk. Um, if you're using a drug, drug drugs are not drug containers are not able to be recycled. They're, they're treated as medical waste. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's plastic or glass. Um, you know, once there's medicine put inside of the container, they're treated as medical waste. Um, right. Now, having said that, if you're thinking from an ESG perspective, we use 10 times less heat energy than than glass. We use almost no water. Um, Where Our footprint is much smaller than a glass manufacturing site. Um, so we're much more environmentally friendly than, than, say, traditional glass manufacturing of vials.
0: Oh, that's good. So, I mean, obviously, since your company uh, broke off in 2012, you've had these vials since before COVID, but how did COVID affect demand for them? For us, the
1: demand went up quite dramatically in the sense that we were starting off initially as a syringe manufacturer. Most of our customers were looking for syringes Mm -hmm. using the same technology. Now, what happened during COVID was there was a massive uptake in terms of the need uh, for vials, and that came across. You had you know anywhere between ten and fifteen potential drug manufacturers who were working on vaccines. All of them needed vials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened was, is there was a glass shortage, uh, and in our discussions with the U.S. government, as they started to look at rebuilding the infrastructure as part of Operation Warp Speed, you know, they they in our discussions with us, we were able to explain to them how we can ramp up our manufacturing quite fast typical glass manufacturing you know if you're going to build a new manufacturing site it takes anywhere between 24 and 36 months mm-hmm. to build a new factory with for us you know building a new factory was taking six to nine months so substantially shorter and that's just because the technology is different it's, it's mm-hmm. a much faster scaling technology we also use a very different supply chain we're not using glass or glass sand uh, at all in our in our process so we're basically using plastic resin Mm-hmm. and then various gases to produce the glass-like barrier. So for us, we, our, our capacity, our ability to produce the vials went from producing you know, 10 million vials per year mm-hmm. to all of a sudden producing 10 million vials per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, that was a huge uh, you know, benefit to the U.S. government and to some of our customers to be able to supply them vials very quickly for COVID-19.
0: So how fast did you, were you able to ramp up production to that level? Ah, that was, that was
1: crazy. If I remember that time, I, mean, <laughs> I think we, we went from, I mean, literally we, we built four factories in less than nine months. Uh, mm-hmm. And these are kind of greenfielded factories. So we ramped up very quickly. We went from, you know, 10, 10 million vials producing on an annual basis to producing that much on a monthly basis um, and, and demand and that, and, we were not meeting the demand that we were required to. So that was, mm-hmm. you know, we, we continued to scale since that time.
0: Yeah, and it seems like demand for the vaccines and for boosters and for, you know, subsequent variations are, is probably going to be continuing. Although, you know, hopefully if we're lucky as a species, not to quite the same extent that we've had to, to get to where we are now.
1: No, correct. I mean, and, and the thing is what happened with this is that there was so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. right? Even to the point where people were saying we didn't know how many doses they were going to fit in a vial. So, you know, initially we were thinking, okay, we're producing 10 million vials per month. Um, You know, that's 120 million vials per year, but people forget that that's translates into 1.2 billion doses, right? Because you're talking about, you know, 10 and now it's actually 15, 10 to 15 doses per vial. These are multi-dose, multi-dose vials. So, you know and along with that being able to you know put together shipping studies it's not just producing the vial you're producing a substantial amount of data substantial amount of documentation mm-hmm. evidence to submit you know our customers when they submit their regulatory approval they're submitting the approval of their drug or vaccine inside of our vial or inside of our right, container right yeah
0: yeah and i think that's kind of a something for people to keep in mind when people talk about um thinking that the vaccines were produced so quickly it's it's not so much that they, the science wasn't there. It's like that's really what got them through. The science was there. Like we'd already studied, you know, mRNA vaccines. We'd already studied other coronaviruses. And companies like yours had these systems in place to scale up production quickly that, you know, kind of really saved the day in terms of putting this stuff out there as quickly as possible.
1: Well yeah, and, and, and to your point, right? We were working with these mRNA vaccine companies way before COVID. So they had mm-hmm. done what we call stability testing of their of the type of drug or type of vaccine inside of our containers, you know, for months, many months beforehand, almost you know, in some cases, sometimes multiple years of data. So it's not like all of a sudden here comes this new vaccine vial and a new mm-hmm. vaccine and you put it together. Right. The, the work has been done, as you said, for, for many months before COVID even hit.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I really try to emphasize that with people when they ask me, you know, if, you know, working in the drug industry, how did we get these vaccines so quickly? It's like, well, the bedrock was there mm-hmm. and we had an incredible motivating factor and also funds from the government to offset risk for companies putting a lot of energy into something that they weren't sure if it was going to work or not. So, correct. yeah. So how much, how much lead time did you get?
1: Um, like three months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah.
1: Three, three months from, you know, to go from zero to a hundred and, you know, as soon as possible. So there was, I mean, it it was kind of like, just go run, run as fast (laughs) as you can and put everything together. And, um, you know, we ended up doing, people think, and it's very interesting. People think that, that people did shortcuts it's actually the other way around because you can't Mm -hmm. really do shortcuts in pharma. You -hmm. need the data and documentation. What we ended up doing, we actually ended up spending a lot more money on overdoing things, right. right? Or, or having studies done multiple times because you couldn't afford to say, okay, if this sample wasn't working, submit another one and wait another three months. Right. It was really, was okay. You have samples, send them all, (laughs) get them all tested. (laughs) And then come back and then we say, OK, well, then you ended up scrapping or throwing out a bunch of stuff, which, OK, at the time, it was speed was more important than, than cost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And things were being done concurrently. It's like they might right. be manufacturing the, the vaccine itself and you're va- manufacturing the vials and you guys are hoping that your timelines will meet up, but you don't mm-hmm. know for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So speaking of which, bringing in the bigger picture, what are your views on how COVID has shaped innovation generally?
1: I thought that there was a lot more emphasis on collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, yeah, definitely this has driven collaboration. I actually don't know if it has, right? Because I I kind of see pharma almost reverting back to being isolated, you know, Mm -hmm. in individuals again. Um, What I do think has happened is that, you know, you mentioned mRNA vaccines being around for some time or the technology being around for some time. The general nature of pharma is, you know, you're not, it doesn't pay. I hate to say this, but it doesn't pay to focus on, you know, certain tropical diseases or certain vaccines, Mm -hmm. which, you know, might only affect a small population. Right. Right. So what happened was nobody was focusing on some of these COVID type of vaccines because, all right, it's a vaccine where everybody was focusing on was cancer. Right, right. Yeah. Everybody focuses on cancer. All the cell and gene therapy is focusing on rare diseases. You know, there's more money there, um, but then the patient population is smaller. The um, you know the the money required to do large scale studies is, is not as much if you were doing it for a more general population. So what happened was is that you know mRNAs were maybe not so successful in. You know some of these cancers or rare diseases and there was a lot of you know work and trials being done but then when it came to something more mainstream something that didn't require what i would call durability of the drug mm-hmm. right that it just attacks and then goes away versus having to stay in your system for you know for you know like cancer it has it's a it's it's a longer term therapy that has to be there for you know extended periods of time to kill the cancer um You know, I think what happened was is that people started to realize that, okay, with a substantial amount of money, there is a lot of things that can be battled in pharma, right? Mm -hmm. But private industry is not always going to be focused on the same thing as, say, government. And if you bring the two together, you know, really the opportunities are endless. I mean, the the way we brought, you know, multiple vaccines for COVID-19 to market... Um, was really because there was a huge emphasis and there was a financial element, right? I mean company look at you know bioentech, Moderna, you know, these companies were startups and they did right. not have they had they had substantial investments, but they didn't have an endless pocketbook to be mm-hmm. able to produce things. Now these are multi-billion dollar companies based on a single a single ent- single drug or vaccine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So it it changes the way we have to think about you know, drug development and how companies are formed and how they're, you know, how they're motivated to bring things to market. Right. Right. So imagine taking that same kind of money, putting that towards HIV, you know, it's not, it's not unrealistic to think that we could wipe out, you know, the HIV virus with the right amount of, you know, substantial funding and focus and energy
0: around that. Mm hmm. Oh, that wouldn't that be something? But luckily, I mean, none of these things exist in a bubble. Any advances that get made in one area could potentially be applied to advances in another area. Yes. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) So beyond your own products, what, if any changes, do you see to do pharma packaging post-COVID? Well, you know,
1: pharma is still an industry that is adverse to change. Right. And it's 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 embedded in the way the industry operates. Right. There's so much risk taken into developing a new drug that the whole the rest of the pharmaceutical supply chain is all about eliminating risk. Mm -hmm. So if you come out with this brand new and take us for example, you come out with this brand new, arguably 100 times better package. But it's still new. Right. So there you know, the pharma companies are very risk averse. Now we benefited because we were, pharma companies were almost forced to try our technology because they couldn't get access to the old stuff, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's helped substantially. But you know, going forward, what I what I would like to see is I'd like to see more elements of the pharmaceutical supply chain, you know, looking at newer and cutting edge technologies of how they can solve problems, right? And yeah, and I don't know if I'm gonna if I see that moving very quickly. There's a lot of incumbents along the supply chain that are that are highly resistant to any kind of change.
0: Right. I think we will have to eventually, though, if we want to survive as a species, because we're going to have to start majorly factoring in things like climate impact. Right. Um, and, you know, it, factoring that into a supply chain from any industry is, I think, going to be a much bigger deal going forward, or at least it should be. <laughs> Sure.
1: No, I, I agree with you 100%. Everything relates to incentive, mm-hmm. right? I'm a, and I'm a big believer in that. People do and come, organizations do and entities do what they're incentivized to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so until the incentives are aligned, um, we can talk about environmental and you know ESG and sustainability all we want. But you're, you're going to get some people who are moving in that direction, but you're not going to get large amounts of industry moving there unless there are substantial incentives to do so right and those don't have to be monetary incentives right they could be you could they could be workforce incentives right you're not going to be able to hire the top talent anymore because the top talent of the next generation are all worried about sustainability so if you don't if you're if you're not moving in that direction then you're not going to hire the right people i mean that's also an incentive it doesn't when i talk incentives i'm not talking about just dollars and cents
0: yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's definitely the case. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lawrence, for providing your insights. And I'm, uh, you know, good luck with the scaling going forward.
1: My pleasure. I think, it'll be,
0: I think it'll be a long-term thing for sure.
1: Absolutely. And, we, you know, we're just trying to help out. We're trying to save the world one vial at a time. And uh, we have a <laughs> yeah. fantastic team, a great, great group of people who are working day and night with their families to to really try to make things work. So, Thank you for the time. It was was a great conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Cheers. Take care.